Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Alex Dalyuk. Alex is co-founder and CEO of Tractable AI. Tractable does computer vision for insurance and financial services and has raised $115 million in funding. Alex, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you very much for having me. You have all these images of car crashes and things like that. How did you go about initially sourcing all of these images? One of the things that attracted us to this application of helping people recover from accidents faster with computer vision was, first of all, just how much data there actually is on this and how much labeled data there is, which is key for supervised learning. For a couple of decades now, anytime you get into an accident with your car, the body shop is going to take photos of the damage, write up an estimate and submit it to your insurance company. So not on the crash site, but when you send it over to the body shop, they have to take a bunch of photos. Okay, got it. Correct. That's a workload that's existed for a couple of decades. The key is that the people paying for the work and the people doing the work are different. So you need a digitized audit trail. And that is actually a goldmine for artificial intelligence that was building itself up without people really knowing about it. For example, there are literally billions of images of damaged cars being produced every year globally. Wow. Yeah. And that's owned by the insurance company? Like who owns that data? The images are always by default, the property of the individual who took them. But then of course, based on the agreements that you have, there are various rights over who can use it. And for all intents and purposes, yes, insurers have the right to be able to use those images and send them to third parties for help. And so that's our case. Initially, you had an idea that you could do this, but maybe you didn't have the data. The data is owned by the insurance companies. How did you convince them to share that data with you so that you could help them? Yeah, it's always that cold start problem, right? It all started with a partnership with a software company that actually provides this software for body shops to write estimates and send them to their insurer. So the company is called Mitchell International. It's now more recently rebranded into a company called Enlight. They're a great partner of ours, but they basically for 50 years or more have been doing this. So they are sitting on terabytes upon terabytes of this data. And of course, granted that you get the permissions from your customers, we were able to make a partnership happen where Tractable would provide the artificial intelligence know-how, which especially back then in 2015 was in very short demand. There were just five or six labs that practiced deep learning around the world. And so we brought that to the table and they brought that data to the table. And so that, that really kickstarted a data set that was really, really large in the nine figures of images. And then since then, once you have that, you're able to go to each insurer and say, look, you know, however much data you, you're going to bring is going to be small compared to what we already have. So if you want to benefit from the pool that we're bringing, you need to contribute to it as well. And by doing so, we've been able to diversify that. And you think of it like a data co-op, everybody who contributes, your product gets better for all your customers? Correct. Of course, every time it's a discussion with the customer, some customers may decide, you know what, I don't want to contribute at all and benefit from. So there is a way to essentially be a freeloader. There isn't. They'll say, look, I don't want others to benefit. And so I won't benefit. It'll just be my data. Or there'll be cases where they'll say, look, I'm happy to contribute to a pool and benefit from it as long as it's not my competitors or my top competitors. And so that's why the fact that we now operate in 15 countries helps because actually the solution we offer in Japan all of those sedans and pickup trucks that we've seen in America do help train the algorithm for the Japanese market. 
But then I guess at one point, like, why would you even care if it's going to be a common good for everybody? Why would why why would it really matter? Are you really helping your competitor? Is it 0.01% better or something over time? Yes. You're right that over time, it becomes less and less of a question. Okay. Interesting. You know, one of the one of the other companies in the insurance space, obviously, has been around for a long time. Is Verisk. They're well known for having a data co-op. And Scott Stevenson, the Verisk CEO, was talked about it on World of DAS. Do you think about your data co-op in a similar way that Verisk thinks about their data co-op? In the sense of the data cooperative brought together creates a very valuable good that the whole customer base can benefit from, yes. In terms of the exact agreements that they have in place, I can't comment as to whether they're the same as ours. It's certain that the founding story of Verisk is remarkable, right? It was it started off with insurers pooling their data together so that they had a single area to choose from. And then eventually that became a private company, which was Verisk. In our case, we didn't start off with that. We kind of built it as we went along. If you look at these different data co-ops, there's many different ways to do it. One of them is the Verisk Visa way, where they're essentially the co-op is owned by the companies. And then maybe eventually they become their own company or something like that. But there are, of course, there are many other, the tractable way is also a way of building a co-op. There's many different ways of building a valuable data co-op. Your product's built on machine learning. The interesting things about these companies that have machine learning is that there often has to be some sort of human in the loop to get it going from the get-go. Like You can't get perfect right away. How did that work? And how did the economics of that change over time too? It's just like autonomous driving, right? You go from, from level zero to level five automation and you go uh, gradually every step of the way. You can't jump straight into level five because actually those intermediary steps are really important to generate really important feedback data from humans in order to further improve the algorithm. If you even think of Google search, that's like a giant human in the loop system where they've ranked the pages wrong. Well, humans will click and go, hang on, that fifth link is more relevant. That's what I'm clicking on. Google says, thank you, human in the loop, and, and updates its machine learning algorithm. It's very important to have it. In our early days, that's one of the things we found out is, wait a second. Yes, we're an AI company. That doesn't mean that right from the get-go, everything needs to be done by AI. On the contrary, we want to, and the customer wants to have that extra level of quality safety and to include a human QA service on top to make sure that the accuracy is always there. In your early stages, that's pretty significant. You know, you may even have human QA almost all the time, but as you keep going and the years rack up and your data set racks up, then you're able to tone that down and take it down to close to 0% levels. What type of humans do you need? Do you need to like train these humans or can they be mechanical turkers or how do you like scale up all those humans? So in our case, these are specialized tasks. You need to be an expert at appraising vehicles. These are people that work in-house with us, that we train to become experts at appraising vehicles. I just want to kind of finish on the journey that we've been through in this case. Today, we are analyzing about $2.5 billion worth of vehicle repairs and purchases. That's how much we enable. Well upward of 10,000 vehicles scanned a day. That would be completely impossible to manage with the team that we have. So on that service, to give you a sense, I think 85% of our revenue comes from uh, artificial intelligence that is 100% automated without any human QA. However, every time there's a brand new product, a brand new AI model, that's when the, the human QA starts off a bit high. And to your point, it does change the unit economics. And before Tractable, an insurance company had to have a person look at the file to make some sort of determination on it? Or was there some sort of heuristics that they used based on if it 
hit all the heuristics they could put it through. And if it was unclear, maybe then they had a human look at it or had it work beforehand. You've got a few steps. The first step of, hey, is Tractable confident in this AI result to send it right through without any QA? But then there's also, is the customer comfortable acting on that output? without any human QA on their end either. That's why we have kind of different product offerings. We have one product offering, which is the one that customers like to get started with, which says rather use your AI to tell us which cases we need to be looking at. And then we'll have humans look at those. So it's more of a prioritization tool. But then we have another one, which is, okay, we can offer an incredible customer experience if the AI just, just does the whole thing itself in real time. Because you can immediately give the customer uh, a reimbursement or whatever it might be that's coming, right? Exactly. Drop the time pretty quickly. That's correct. One example application that we're quite delighted by at the moment is, yeah, allowing people to get their their auto claim payout or even uh, actually their property, their home claim paid out immediately, uh, literally while they're on the phone on that first phone call. Yeah, that's amazing. Or potentially even without any phone call at all if they've if they've registered their loss electronically. In order to do that, well, you've basically got to put yourself in the claim handler's shoes. You've got, this is the first time the customer is telling you about a loss. You say, are you in your home or are you by your car? Can you take imagery of the damage? Those algorithms need to run in real time. You can't have a human in the loop at that point because you need real time to deliver a result to be able to just wire that bank transfer. So imagine if there's like a fire or something like that, how important that would be for the customer to get that money as quickly as possible. Exactly. So actually in October, we went live in Japan during Typhoon Mindule which was a, a pretty high category uh, typhoon. When those hit, it basically literally leaves people without a proper roof over their heads. And the problem is it impacts an entire province of Japan, for example. And so you have a huge shortage of appraisers and of repairers at a time where you don't have a proper home anymore. In those cases, having to wait 50 days to get some financial relief from your insurer is not fun at all. And so, yeah, in those moments, being able to come in and say, hey, as soon as you call us, Today, we will have that financial relief sent to you. It's a truly delightful moment. You mentioned Japan. I know you guys are in, obviously, the US. I think you're in France, Poland, UK. You're in a bunch of different countries. I assume the algorithms have to be tweaked, different rules. There are some things that are both cultural, but there's also things that are legal in each different jurisdiction. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of points we're touching on there. So certainly every customer is going to be different. You need to develop ways to be able to make your algorithms fit the data of, of your customer or, you know, in a more business way, fit the standards, right? Um, kind of replicate the appraisal standards desired by that insurer in that country on those kinds of vehicles or homes. That's a data domain shift. And so you want to minimize how much machine learning, applied machine learning effort is required in order to do that. I think that's actually potentially a very big uh, space for applied machine learning, which is kind of developing tools to be able to do that really fast. So there's that piece, but then you're right, there's also legalities. So for example, in some American states, a estimate of repair cost has to be signed, authored by a licensed appraiser. That means however fast you make the, the, the customer experience with artificial intelligence, at some point, someone licensed has to validate that that's correct. You can still make this, this experience lightning fast, right? I'm on the phone. Here's the amount. We all agree. You have a backend process where just before actually wiring the funds, you have a licensed appraiser confirm this is all good. And you, know, you still have a delightful customer experience. But yes, legalities do change and matter. Most insurance companies only operate in one jurisdiction. There's not a ton of them that are massively cross-border or something like that. It's not like 
Toyota, which sells cars everywhere in the world. Am I right about that? And if so, is there like a hard go to market problem? It's not like Toyota can bring you into all these different countries. One thing that I find fascinating is why the largest American insurers are just in America. And it's actually the Europeans often that have gone worldwide. So there are in multiple That's right. countries. Okay, got it. Okay. Their home market isn't big enough or something. It could very well be that. Another thing that I find fascinating is how you don't really have general insurance in America as much as you do in Europe. So State Farm is the largest property and casualty insurer. And so they'll do auto, home, life, but you know they won't do health. Whereas in Europe, the largest insurer in the whole world is AXA, and that's a French insurer. They basically operate in every single line of insurance there is, whether that's medical, that's business, commercial, personal, PNC, you name it. I think that actually makes it fascinating because not only, and of course they are global, and so not only can a relationship with AXA take you global, but it can also help you as an AI company expand from one domain to the next. When we have a a relationship with the CEO of AXA UK, this is the person that is in the end, the buck stops with this person in terms of making 15% of all the car repairs in the country, 15% of all of the home repairs in the country, 15% of all of the insured medical bills in the country, all of that rolls up to this person. And so if you have an artificial intelligence that can help understand damage to cars or understand damage to homes or understand a medical scan, a huge adoption moment is that same individual. I think that's what makes it so fascinating to work with insurers, especially in Europe, because they really are this protective backbone of many sectors of the economy. In the US, every single state regulates insurance differently. Many of them have actual elected officials. California has an insurance commissioner whose job it is to regulate insurance. And I believe Texas has a similar type of thing, And which is somewhat crazy. You move 20 minutes from one border to the other, and all of a sudden you're in a completely different... As a startup, I imagine this is very, very difficult. Are there companies to help you navigate all the different insurance rules and stuff like that? Or do you need to build this in-house system to get you smart enough to, to make sure you're adhering to each specific state? Certainly, especially when it comes to underwriting. If you have a new model of underwriting and you want to use a new characteristic and you want to incorporate that into your underwriting models, that's when it becomes super complex in the United States because you need to get an okay from every department of insurance and it's one person. One thing that we find really, really pleasing about our approach is we don't actually discriminate by humans. We don't care about any personal uh, private information. We just want to know show us your car. We don't need to know your name, your address, your face, none of that. And so as a result, we don't discriminate. That helps a huge amount. We're also on the claim side, right? It's about let's figure out how much it costs to get this repaired and let's get it sent to you fast. Not so much about how much I should charge you as a premium. And so for that purpose, actually, one thing that is truly incredible about working in the United States is the scale that you can attain because that insurance company will have one chief claims officer. And if they decide your solution is terrific, off you go at full scale. Whereas in Europe, for example, is going to be tightly federated. You're going to have HE claims officer for every one of those 44 European countries. Now, when I was reading about Tractable, I heard a story that you initially had this customer that was produced plastic pipe welds or something. And it was like your only customer when you started. And it was the whole thing you're trying to find product market fit. And then they ended up leaving you while you were fundraising. What did you learn from that experience and how did that shape the company? 
I find it really hopefully useful for the entrepreneurial community to share stories like that now that we are you know, one of the 20 computer vision unicorns, because it shows that the path is never rosy and there are extremely difficult moments that you go through and that basically you just need to not give up. And so, yeah, one of those rather unusual moments was we were in the middle of our fundraising process for our first round ever. We only have one customer and they drop us. <laughs> You would think you don't have a company left at that point. Well, you know, thank goodness we had identified auto insurance and, and investors didn't think it was so important to, to make a huge fuss about pipe weld space. But yeah, I, th I think the learning on that was we should have definitely kind of managed that relationship a little better. Maybe also that company thought they were just working with one dude doing his postgraduate degree in university. And all of a sudden it was becoming this ambitious startup. So maybe they didn't expect things to go in that direction and they choose to find their next university student that have yeah. these goals in mind. But I really think the biggest lesson is, is to not give up. Winning customers in insurance, especially, is like a really slow grind. Insurance companies are not known as companies that move very, very quickly. They're moving very, very deliberately. As we mentioned before, they're very regulated. What tactic did you use to convince them to make a bet on you when you're early growth stage? It is grueling. There's one in particular, I love joking to this, this individual who's become a bit of a friendly acquaintance. I love referring to the first email that we ever exchanged, which was in 2015. And so uh, I keep saying, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been six years. Actually, we're in the process of running our first ever proper proof of concept with them. So I, I, keep, I keep joking to him. <laughs> we only get to run a POC with you once every six years. So <laughs> better be good. Yeah. It better be good. Good jokes around it. He's a terrific guy. Yes, it's, uh, it takes a long, long, long time. So how do you do it? There is certainly one aspect which is wonderful, I think, is once you've signed a good number of them up, they're there to stay. So that, that's probably amazing. And I think and that, that's part of why I hope Tractable will, will be a really a long story that will, that will keep growing. We'll have this incredible base, customer base to support us as we keep expanding. In the short run, getting the first one, one thing was certainly technological superiority. You know, you've got to have a technology that nobody else has that blows people's minds. And so what we had was, there's actually a video available online, but what we would say is, look, we have these algorithms that can assess damage on the car and you can test it yourself right now. We would put up the demo in the meeting room and we would say, tell us what to type into Google. We'll type anything you like. Tell us what to scroll down to. We'll take that image and we'll drop it. And that just created such a show. It was interactive. They'd say, oh, try that funny one with the bumper sticker and try this one. And oh, that one's got flood. And we drop it in. And in the very early days, it doesn't work absolutely every time, but it still truly impresses. Of course, now it's uh, extremely robust. So I think that was important. They say, wow, and nobody else can produce that kind of, of technology. It's unique. Yeah. That's right. So there's that technological superiority that's proven in a kind of really striking way. Then that plus, in the end, across all the countries we work with, people like to be sold to by someone like them. And so if you're in France, you've got to find someone French. If you're in America, you've got to find someone American. Even if you're in the Midwest, best to have someone who's Midwestern. If you're in, a, in Texas, best to have a Texan and so forth. So I even made, for example, the mistake of um, me being European, of I'd settle down in New York City. A bunch of New Yorkers would come over and we'd realize there's a big culture clash between New Yorkers and Midwesterners. So we eventually realized, okay, <laughs> you know, we've got to diversify the, uh, the America team. That's one piece that's very important. And then the third one, to be honest, is just utter relentlessness because yes, it's very, very hard to make such large companies move. You've just got to throw so much energy to try and start creating a bit of motion. SafeGraph, we sell data to insurance companies and it's just really good advice to keep on it and really kind of push it as well. You're headed in also car insurance and doing car imagery. 
It's kind of like your core bread and butter. You're now headed into property insurance space as well. As you enter into these other verticals, how do you see these insurers combining with your technology and, and maybe also other alternative data to improve their claims management? Yes. You know, for instance, with property insurance, maybe you really need really good weather data to really help you. Maybe you really need to understand what's in the soil or something. Okay. Well, the roof's not there, but you need some sort of data about what the roof was made out of. And so you need old satellite imagery. How do you think about these other data sources? The roof isn't there anymore. How do you, how do you figure some of these things out? <laughs> wow. You've, you would, you're just spot on. <laughs> You've basically named a few perfect data partnerships. So yes, you need a complete solution. There's loads of other data that could be helpful. If you're looking at a car or looking outside in, it can help a lot to have connected vehicle data. So that's why one of our big forays at the moment is working with vehicle manufacturers. We actually hope to, to sign and announce a couple of them this year, but we think it'd be incredibly powerful to be complementing connected vehicle data with computer vision from a smartphone to have a complete assessment of that car, whether the car needs to be repaired or just solved just changed hands without any kind of human assessment or towing to any location needed. So there's one there, which is connected vehicle data. Same thing with homes. Homes are getting more and more connected and that can be extremely helpful, for example, to identify you know, water damage situations. When we're talking about, about hurricane damage recovery, then absolutely knowing the dimensions of that roof is so important and that comes through aerial imagery. Going back to the company, you found Intractable, I think, right out of college, which is amazing. In terms of recruiting talent, what advice would you give other young founders who are trying to recruit people who are likely more experienced than themselves? Yep. That was definitely one of the really tough things. And I was on a podcast with Reed Hoffman where I told him this was one of the things I'd found really hard. You feel really nervous when you're straight out of college thinking, I can't hire someone that's basically who I will be 10 years from now if I go into industry. That's crazy. That person's like me in 10 years. Surely they don't want to work for me. And so, yeah, you tend to just hire very junior people. I would say you've just got to kind of force yourself to hire people that are older and more experienced. Maybe have an advisor that's on your team or an investor kind of help to do that. And it's awkward the first time, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. That's kind of what I found. One thing that Reed said, which I found fascinating, is look, if the mission of your company is one that you really believe it as being one of the most fulfilling ones in a lifetime, then you've got one of the best mission statements on the planet. Regardless of how senior the other person that you're interviewing is, this is literally one of the best missions in the world for them to work on. So it doesn't matter how old you are. I thought that was terrific. And to me, that's, that's really what startups around the world can learn from Silicon Valley. You did have a co-founder, Adrian Cohen, who previously was the co-founder, I think, of Lazada, which was like a big Southeast Asian e-commerce giant acquired for Alibaba for well over a billion dollars. How did you, how do you guys, how do you convince him to work with you? Because he presumably could have been like set for life and living on a private island or something. So how do you get someone like that to help co-found the company with you? Yeah. Can't comment on Adrian's finances. I think in this case, what really, really appealed to Adrian was the technology. Adrian is a businessman by background. And so when you work in, in e-commerce in, in 2012, 13, 14, 15, it's a huge moment for e-commerce, but it's a technology that's been a, with the internet, right? Which has been around now for a bit of time. You're moving goods around, which have been around for some bit of time. Artificial intelligence, that is a very deep technology, very complex technology that promises to revolutionize mankind this century. And so I think for him, it was an incredible way to, to get involved there at a point in time where you could be co-founder, but right after our seed round. So it's a company with serious investors and kind of a, a, a proven opportunity. So I think that's what did it. Interesting. That's cool. You know, another story I heard is that 
you tried to get acquired right after you raised your series A and then it didn't pan out, which obviously I'm sure you're extremely thankful for now. What was kind of the motivation? How did you work with your investors and your board? What did you learn from that experience? Again, I think this is one of the other interesting stories to share to other entrepreneurs out there because entrepreneurs out there might be thinking, oh, I've got this opportunity to exit. Should I do it? you might just be passing on something enormous that you could be building if you kept going. And yeah, back then we thought we had nothing. This was leading up to our Series A. The best contract in intro we had was a $50,000 pilot. That was it. That's what we had squandered a $2 million round to get. Plus that very important partnership with Mitchell. We thought this is terrible. Like We can't generate revenue with this business. There's nothing. Let's go sell to this tech giant. Yeah, thank God it didn't work out. <laughs> I think um, <laughs> I think the lesson there is it's really astounding to what extent if you want something to become really big, it'll become really big if you really, really want it to, basically. And, and if you don't believe in it, then there's no way it'll ever get there. I think the other thing to be mindful of is getting advice from people who are a bit more opportunistic might bias you to basically taking like easy way out as opposed to those who are truly passionate and have really peak ambition. I know that you were initially rejected the first time you applied for Entrepreneur First, which is a startup incubator that you eventually attended. And by the full disclosure, I'm an investor in Entrepreneur First, and that's kind of how we met. What advice would you give others who may have been rejected for the first time? How do you keep trying? How do you know when to stop what you're doing, pivot, et cetera? Certainly Entrepreneur First, incredible incubator program. It changed my life. That first rejection is what changed my life because maybe this will help answer your question. I I knew nothing about tech the first time I applied. I was an economics and mathematics undergrad. I'd done this this work in e-commerce for a little bit. And then I had friends in a fashion school in London and I thought, oh, let's help them crowdfund for so that they can directly commercialize their fashion design instead of joining a fashion house. So I knew nothing about tech. And so EF said, well, we're only here to build tech companies. So sorry, but no, thank you. Then there's one thing that Matt Clifford, the fantasy of EF said, which really stuck with me, which is, look, never before in time has it been possible for one person in their bedroom to build a product and serve millions of people around the world. And that's the power of the programmable computer combined with the internet. That's the scale. And I thought, okay, that's, you make a really good point there. This is the stuff of magic. I always had, up until then, I'd seen software as frustratingly intangible. I'd say, is there such thing as a software product? I can't touch it. I can't, you know, break it apart. It's, I didn't like that. But the moment Matt said that, it just transformed how I saw things. I then went ahead and did a, a conversion course in computer science at Imperial, kind of really got into deep learning and image recognition. If EF hadn't worked out, I would have gone to do a PhD. So that transition into science, it wouldn't have happened without that rejection. And so I guess the lesson to people is probably when something fails, it's, it's always tempting to kind of place the blame on something outside your control. Oh, that incubator program, they don't get it. Let me go find another one or something. I think you can improve yourself so much more by... Well, actually taking that blame and saying, okay, why was I not good enough? What do I need to do to improve? Why did they say no? What would make them say yes? I'm going to go work on it. And so, okay, I'm going to go learn computer science and be, be a machine learning scientist. Okay, cool. I have heard rumors that you are actually a funk musician on the side and you both sing and rap. What is the secret to kind of nurturing your creative side while you're building this unicorn? And do you think one helps the other? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really funny. You, you, you must have done some amusing research because <laughs> during that Series A where all we had was that 50K contract, we were staying in a home in, in San Francisco. And yeah, just to kind of let off some steam, I just 
went and like uh, I guess wrapped in front of the laptop, recorded it, and put it on YouTube, and hope nobody would find it. But uh, <laughs> there you go. Do you ever like wrap in your sales pitches or anything? Or uh... okay, so so we had a, a really difficult moment in the United States for a bit, and then there were these enormous breakthroughs where one of the most famous American brands, you can look it up online, partnered with us. There were kind of these sudden massive breakthroughs in the U.S. that we experienced last year. We actually, myself and and, and Judy Kafer, who who runs North America, we rewrote Still Dre from from Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre to talk about the tractable story. We have that whole script written out. And uh, we have yet to perform it. So if what? you want afterwards, we we could create a little 10, 15 second clip where we actually do that and incorporate it in this podcast. Oh, be all- can you lay down? Can you lay down a couple of beats now or no? Let me see. So I hope. Let me see what have I got. <laughs> okay. <let's see. laughs> all right. This is a first on World of Das. We're laying down some beats here. I hope you've got still DRE on your mind. Hopefully we'll, we'll add it in, in post-production. And there's a moment in the beginning when Dr. Dre comes in and goes, oh, for sure, check me out. Okay, so that bit, okay, we're going we're gonna to layer in some, some tractable lyrics here. So he All goes, right, let's do it. He goes, oh, for sure, check me out. It's still AI, brother. Car claims, brother. Though we'd grown a lot, not in US a lot. Because when we flew to the spots that we used to rock, we'd hear legal departments barge in and block. Japan, they pay homage, but America say we fell off. How, brother? Our last client was the farmers. They want to know if we still got it. They say U.S. is chain. They want to know how we feel about it. Oh, man, this is good. All right. Well, if you know, if Tractable doesn't work out, I think we got another career for you. This is pretty exciting. You can be on American Idol here or, or the European version of it. Probably yeah. not. I, I'm, I'm interested in artificial intelligence, but it's fun. I think it's, it's a, you know, we have people often ask like, what's the culture you want to build? And to me, the, the three values that come out are results, feedback, and fun. So results is the ambition. Feedback is exactly what Macliff had said, you know, go learn computer science. But when you place yourself super ambitious goals and when you screw up, you say it's my fault and you tell everybody it's your fault, you got to have some fun. <laughs> you got to make people lay down some rap tunes when when they want to. We're going to do some tunes for World of Das in the future. Last question we ask all of our guests, what is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? So there's one that I find really funny is you can't build a company with a solution that's looking for problems to solve. That's a big one. And I would say, well, that's what we did with Tractable. (laughs) And actually you could say pretty much any deep tech, cutting edge, cutting edge tech company does that. They start with cutting edge technology and then they say, okay, we're going to try and solve something with it. Where do we go? What focus? Okay, here you found, okay, well, car insurance could be a focus of what we're doing. That's right. And so I think you can, you can do it as long as you, are, you take a very rigorous scientific approach to understanding what can this technology do better than anything else? And then being very curious and looking at a large number of use cases. So we'd look at, at car insurance, we'd looked at dermatology, we'd look at natural resource uh, exploration. Uh, plants, you know, the list kind of really, really went on. Yeah, taking a very rigorous scientific approach to looking at, okay, if I apply this technology, can it actually be the best solution out there, better than anything else? And quantifying the impact it can have, looking at that market size, then I think you can do it. Oh, this is awesome. Alex, tell us where we can find you on the broader interwebs. That YouTube video? <laughs> okay, yeah. Is there app? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay. Could do could do Twitter as well, although um, I don't know. Nobody seems to care. <laughs> well, oh, man, I love Twitter. 
Twitter is I, I, I think Twitter is amazing. But oh I, my gosh. I love Twitter so much. All right. This has been awesome. Thank you again, Alex, for joining us at World of Deaths. This has been really fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.